Hi, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Today I talk to Lewis Waller. Lewis Waller is the, uh, the man behind and the face of the YouTube channel Then and Now. Um, and uh, it, it's a really cool YouTube channel that's doing well um, where he does this wonderful thing where he basically takes um, a philosophical and psychological view of history. So it's ostensibly a history of, of thought and philosophy, and he always gets into specifics. Like he has a very um, thorough video on, on how people um, become genocidal and that kind of thing. So it's really serious stuff, and it's really well studied. And Lewis just has this way of, of kind of weaving things together. And one of the things I mentioned to him is that he is, his channel, I highly recommend it, his channel does not come across as having a strong um, or a strongly specific ideological bent in terms of if you watch his channel, you're not going to be like, oh, okay, he's a socialist or whatever. You know, he's a this, he's a that. You can't write him off because he gets very deep and he will, um, he will discuss and really open up the philosophies of even people who are somewhat problematic, philosophers who are somewhat problematic, but then he'll, he'll kind of unpack them from a, a historical, uh, their historical significance and why their ideas caught on and, and what their good ideas were, and, and he'll critique them. I just find it really interesting. And so what I wanted to talk to him about was epistemology, um, the theory of knowledge. Um, I, I've wanted to talk epistemology on the show for a while and wasn't sure who who to talk to about it, uh, and it's not a topic that gets brought up a lot these days. I think we have a very default view of what knowledge is. So anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I found that um, Lewis has a really wide open view. I mean, he's somewhat critical of modernism, uh, and then in this conversation, we also discuss sort of the Romantic period, Romanticism, and then also postmodernism, and how those things all have uh, things to recommend them, and all have things that maybe are are, are necessary or needed. So, um, yeah, really interesting conversation. I hope you like it as much as I did. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe and hit the bell. And if you're on a podcast platform, please subscribe to Morning Talk Show. That would help me out a lot. And please enjoy this conversation with Lewis Waller. Lewis Waller, welcome to uh, Morning Talk Show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Aaron. Uh, what I usually do is start with telling someone why uh, I was really interested in talking to them. Not that, not not so that it's not an honor for, for <laughs> it's not an honor for you to talk to me. But it, it, I just want to let you know the significance of your work and why it was um, something uh, that really pushed me over the line into wanting to speak. Um, and so uh, for me, uh, on a broad level, so if anyone listening to this has heard me but not you, go and watch a lot of uh, videos on now and then because um, I, I really like how in general, you, you don't have uh, an obvious agenda. Uh, it, like you, you have an agenda that's sort of, uh, um, the, the desire to solve problems and be helpful and to, uh, to kind of understand human beings, which um, is so complicated that it's, it's hard to, if, if you get the feeling someone has a really strong agenda right off the bat, it can be really off-putting. Um, and I 
I don't feel that you do. Maybe you feel you have mm. a strong agenda or like a, a very distinct articulatable agenda, but I kind of don't think so. Cause in your, in your, you know, your goals for 2021, it was a whole, it was a whole video. And if you asked me to sum up exactly what you were going to do in 2021, I probably still couldn't exactly do that. And, and so that is, to me, it's, Number one, it's really cool and refreshing, but it's also really cool that you have so many people watching your videos because it shows that there's actually a lot of people who are tired of being told that things are actually simple, mm. uh, you know, and that the, that the solutions, if everybody would just get on side with my, my ideology, right. uh, that, that we would get on the right path. So stop dicking around and just like get on board. You know what I mean? Does that, does yeah. this uh, description of your channel make sense or resonate with you? I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think like most of us, I do have political beliefs and I do have intuitions. Um, I try to keep them out of most of the videos and I, but I try to let them creep in almost um subtly in certain videos where i think that not doing so would be disingenuous so i think it's sometimes the case that you have to take a stand on certain issues but i try to differentiate between um between videos between uh, uh, videos that i am trying to be um objective and as unbiased as possible and as fair to whoever i'm covering so for example mm. philosophical thinker but then I also usually do a video that's a kind of a follow-up where I'll explore that person from a more um, personal point of view, maybe uh, with a level of critique, um, maybe with the contemporary issue in mind. Um, right. So at that point, sure, opinions always come in. But I think there's also a way you can do it where you can be as modest as possible with it and you're mm. not ramming it down people's throats right yeah you're you're articulating it in a way that tries to be as open and as um curious as possible right. so yeah, i think that's always the goal but i'll make for example um so i've made a video on hobbs yeah um, and the, la the, the, the one I did after, the one that I've just published today, I've looked at Hobbes's uh, idea of a state of nature and taken Steven Pinker's ideas about violence and human nature. And it's a much more personal critique, but it still tries to be as fair and as data-driven and as um, mm. unbiased as possible, while also alluding to some maybe um um more subjective ideas right say. i guess i uh, and that that's actually part of the balance that i find really compelling is that it, it's very hard to do uh, i think what you're doing because it at, on the one hand it does seem balanced and but it doesn't seem like you are beliefless you know what i mean it, mm. it's, it doesn't translate like a lecturer a lecturer who like today we're doing hobbs tomorrow right. doing Foucault, um, you know, and, uh, and also um, a big uh, thing that just like really, you know, touches me is when people will give an honest 
uh, appraisal of a thinker that may overall be problematic, mm -hmm. right? Um, like like Hobbes. Uh, right. And, and but but these things like you know the the, the modernist and uh, this is just my my maybe my vision of modernist correct modernism. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the modernist thing is like he's right or he's wrong. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you only learn enough about like I grew up. Uh, I say this in every friggin' episode. I grew up in 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 conservative Christianity, uh, and for for me, Nietzsche was the guy who said God is dead. Right. Nobody knew enough about Nietzsche to do anything but dismiss him to someone else who didn't know fuck all about him. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I like how you I, I like how you take. Uh, these thinkers and you actually find hey why did their ideas catch on because ideas don't catch on stupid ideas don't catch on miss you, you know what i mean like uh like truly stupid ideas don't catch on and stupid people don't make you know don't get remembered this far you know from then to now right yeah right now. um <laughs> uh well, and, i think Hobbes is a good example because um he we live under his shadow and you know he is the preeminent thinker that really justified the state and in many ways my politics is intuitively anti-hobbesian right I, I think mine too quite a distaste for some of the things some of the conclusions he makes of on course. the other hand i can fully appreciate that the basis the foundation from which he argues is hugely um, useful and influential and his ideas about, uh, you know, thinking from a state of nature and the way he talks about how reason and logic and, and thinking about the way we relate to our condition, our human condition and how that then justifies or maybe doesn't justify authority um, is an incredible framework. I mean, he's an amazing thinker. So. To me, it's it's not uh, oh I hate this person or I like this person. Um, it's uh, what can we learn from them and yeah. can we maybe criticize? And again, with Hobbes, you can you can you can criticize him in a way that draws upon evidence that he didn't have and say, okay, well maybe he was wrong here. For example, right. um, we have much uh, we have much more evidence about. Um, um, prehistoric hunter-gatherers now than Hobbes did. Mm -hmm. And a lot of ethnographic and anthropological um, data and investigations about how these people live and, and um, or did live. Um, and there may be their, the levels of violence in their societies or how they cooperated, how they were peaceful, et cetera. So you can do that and you can maybe um, clarify and criticize Hobbes with more evidence. And so right. there's quite a strong basis there, I think, for saying he was right or wrong on that particular issue. Sure. But then there's also another part, like you say, that's much more intuitive and much more political and cultural and that we have a feeling that we're anti this person or with this person. And that's one of the joys of philosophy for me, thinking about how all of those values are not you cannot understand them scientifically or objectively there's another way in which we come to accept those values or, or make them part of our 
personalities and characters and and it's a really difficult question that I don't think any philosopher has ever really um really convincingly answered and I do love that question the idea of incommensurate values and how we all have different values and we can't reduce it to just logical rational understanding yeah yeah totally uh there there's this sense um because I I'm very interested in philosophy but I have this uh I don't know if it's a learning disability or what, but I, I will research, and I'm not making fun of learning disabilities. I seriously think that different brains work different ways, that I'll research these thinkers and will come away with nuggets for myself. You know, like I feel like I'm at a, a kind of, this is, oh, I don't know, that's a bad analogy. I was gonna say like I'm at a grocery store and uh, I hear something, I go, I'll take that, thank you. And then later, I may not even recall who, uh, who said it originally, but it's like, it, it's, yeah, I think, the, I think the idea for sort of the average, less academic uh, person is that we are developing actually a frame, an internal framework for measuring what we hear. Um, mm. And it, it, if our internal framework is too uh, harsh, we'll miss a lot. And if mm. our ter- internal framework is too uh, polyamorous or something, will right. miss a lot it's kind of like this idea of, of freedom or complete autonomy is a little yeah. bit silly because you 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 need to almost limit your own autonomy anyway i'm i'm now no ready. i like that i do and i actually i like that grocery store analogy because you're right i have the same feeling you're you're kind of wandering through books and and articles and podcasts and you pick up some things and other things don't very psychoanalytic I suppose the reasons behind why mm-hmm. big believer that you know I trace my political beliefs back to not a logical beginning where I decided that I could work out that that was right or that was wrong but a, a intuition of, and a feeling that comes from my upbringing and my surroundings and our particular historical and cultural moment you can't quantify those things but you know thinking about you're walking down that grocery store aisle there's there's a sense in which certain things along the aisle are put there purposefully for you to you know have to take right Um, and I think of history in that sense sometimes and and our kind of mainstream ideas they're there because they're the the they've either done a lot of good and they're still around for 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 a very good reason um ideas about medicine and science and technology and and lots of political and social and cultural ideas but there's also ideas that are kind of shoved shoved down your throat um because they serve someone's they serve particular interests Mm, yeah and so you know a kind of history this is something i try and do on the channel there are two ways i think of looking at history one is that history is an object out there um you know whether it's a book or a tv show or a film and it's just something out there either for entertainment's sake or something that you consume or something in the past dead um yeah yeah on the other hand there's this interpretation of history that's not as common but i ascribe to i subscribe to which is um that history is something we embody and history is something that guides us and is part of all of us. Mm. 
them, it kind of pieces together the structure of our neurons and synapses. And we, history or historical engagement in ideas and events is more about introspection. So, you know, going down that grocery store aisle, there's things that are kind of um, forced upon us, like when you're queuing at the till, they put the chocolate bars there to try and pull you in. But there's also the the, intro, in, the, the, the model of interest, introspection history where there's something guiding you also right. uh, much more personal and subjective and, and that's totally. cultivated, I think. If, you, if you're shopping hungry, uh, that, that's when you know. Like it is a, it is a hunger, right? And, and, and the, the mind is the same way. Ideas will take root because right. you were hungry for them. And it can yeah. even be, it can be just as useful and valuable and exciting to discover a pernicious idea, to realize how pernicious a certain idea is. And for yeah. some reason, this, uh, the Bible verse, because this is what my brain is filled with, uh, comes to mind that the, it, it, you are Luke, because you're neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's sort of like uh, mm. the, the ideas that are most valuable to discover are the, the hot ideas, or, or like mm. the, they're, the, they're the ideas that are either like, you know, useful or anti-useful, like it kind of it, to, to you in that subjective time, right? It's, it's right. Anyway. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's how you get sucked down a, a rabbit hole online, I think. Um, down into different uh, echo chambers and things, especially when, you know, those big glaring ideas seem like they're the most appealing at certain times when you're angry or upset or whatever. I think like racism is a perfect example of that. It's, you know, obviously weaponized on a very basic level of this is the problem and everything can be sorted and life can be so much better if only we attach all of our problems onto the other or you know onto the immigrant or whatever and for some reason that 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 object in the grocery aisle is very appealing to people when they're disenfranchised and angry right. and just want somewhere to direct their their anger yeah yep absolutely agreed another thing i mean uh, i have the i kind of get i'm a mental picture person and the grocery store came to mind but then the other uh the other cognitive, we were talking about it kind of developing a cognitive framework uh, using the ideas that that appeal that jump out and kind of whichever ones we can more easily internalize the ones that we have some kind of hunger for. Um, I'm kind of reminded of uh, uh, one of the um, a phenomenon I've noticed in, in, in driving a car uh, when you're going somewhere and maybe you're going somewhere you haven't been for a while and uh as you're uh, you're navigating to someplace you haven't been for a long time you're looking for it and as you're as you're going down the road that all of these various landmarks that you could have never brought to mind uh like if somebody had said describe the street on the way to this place you could never mm. have done it but when mm. you get there when you're looking for this specific goal these 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 landmarks uh that are coming at you um you know them like you, it's not just it's not a coincidence you're like okay there's the flower shop yeah. and there's this and there's that and so i guess i'm sort of thinking this is this is leading toward the epistemology question that we were um that we were ostensibly going to talk about um at, i just find that the the mind has uh assembles these ideas into um 
patterns of um, patterns of coherence that mm -hmm. um, and that we the more we can trust the patterns of coherence that our mind is creating, the more we can get to the places that we need to go, you know, right. um, because, um, you know, the, the, the landmarks you see, the things that are pointing your way from your memory, from your past, I guess, from history, um, are there, they're not, there's not always a rational, um, sort of step-by-step -step Google Maps um, element to those. Those things right. are, those things were there waiting in your, in your consciousness for you because at, at a certain time they had a certain salience. And um, I guess there's this idea that, um, you know, the another modernist thing I feel like is there's a real distinct hierarchy of what's important and what isn't important. And a lot of those, a lot of the things that might point us in a, in a very real way to very good things uh, wouldn't meet the criteria for importance. Um, right. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's just saying reminds me of um, a neuroscientist called Antonio Damasio. I don't know if you're familiar with just the, I've just heard the name. I he, have to um, say more, but I don't think so. Yeah, he talked about Descartes' hour and the split between okay. mind body and the rational mind and the sure. uh, emotional body but yeah i'm really influenced by what he calls the somatic marker theory oh yes though i've heard him heard of him through you then yes that's okay. right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah no i like it well, he says that um you know there's one way of thinking about the mind which is the mind is a computer kind of metaphor where it's there are inputs coming in through the eyes through the ears etc and then the mind makes a rational calculation. Um, it might struggle to make that calculation, but it makes the calculation all the same. Do I want tea? Do I want coffee? Do I want to go here? Do I want to go there? What's the best thing? It's calculating. Um, and that's kind of the, in philosophy, the rationalist tradition. Um, he says, and I think this is quite widely accepted now, although I wouldn't say that with too much confidence, but I'm sure it is. Um, he talks about somatic markers, which provide the mind with a feeling before it presents information to consciousness to calculate. So if you see a bear in the woods, you will, um, you know, have a, an adrenaline rushing through your body. Your body will react in a state of fear and a fight or flight response where it has time to calculate you're not there thinking rationally okay what's the best option here at least not at first and so what happens he says is you react emotionally and then that the emotional the somatic marker part of your mind will then present information to your rational mind to then make decisions afterwards mm. i think the significance of this, the social and cultural significance, is that when we're presented with certain ideas, and you could swap the bear for, I mean, again, we're talking about, uh, like we just said, racism, for example. Sure. It's a very simple example. If you're presented with, if you're raised in an environment, sorry, I backtrack slightly, says these somatic markers are built over time. You know, they come from your childhood, they come from your culture, they come from your rules and so you might have a certain emotional reaction to something in much the same way 
um, that you'd have an emotional reaction to um, the bear in the woods. So when we're presented with certain information, when we're reading the news, for example, that if you see a marker, a trigger word, in a kind of psychoanalytic way, that's very dependent on your upbringing and, you know, and your tastes and your intuitions, then you'll have this response to it that provides this, these rational criteria that are very dependent on your subjective mind and your subjective experience. Mm. And so I think he's a very good way, he's a very good person for understanding how our emotions and our feelings and our very particular moments in yeah. geography and history actually determine the thing the ways in which we're trying to have rational logical conversations mm. um so i think i mean i say that yeah that ties into my beliefs around epistemology and that i am in a lot of my videos i talk about critiques of the enlightenment um and i talk about postmodern and and uh, romantic romanticist critiques of the enlightenment and he provides the kind of neuroscientific explanations for what the romantics were talking about in the 19th century and that is that science and reason and logic are incredible wonderful things and tools that we've used to do amazing things and make great advances but there's something preceding them. There's something that comes before. Yes. There's something, you know, in our in the way we think about our sentiments and our intuitions and our attitudes. Mm -hmm. They're kind of they're either passed down generation to generation, or they're embodied through experience at a certain time. But thinking about those things, that's what I find interesting, and that's what I try to do a lot of um, in my videos. Yeah, that and and I think you do a great job. Um, and I I love that. I, I love the different layers, and I do feel like, um, I do feel like it's it's worth re-examining all those things. Um, I have been wondering too if there isn't. Well, first of all, I would say yes. I, I love that idea of the sort of subjective layer of things, but I also love that you don't present that subjective layer as a bad thing, right? Nice. Um, it's just a, a part of us, and and that I think that was one of the biggest revelations. Sounds ridiculously simple, but one of the biggest revelations I had about my own personal kind of religious life was that it was super subject subjective, and that that wasn't. A, a net good or a net bad it was just right. something to acknowledge um yeah. and and all of my religious um kind of symbolism and and training and all of that almost instantly is a bad word but in in within a year or two i felt like it was all there for me to use however whenever it was useful you know and that it, it yeah. really it really came alive um, right. in other words the objectivity the false and incorrect uh feeling i had that it was objective and that many people yeah. have that it is objective was holding me holding me back from a lot of the wisdom and it's not even that the wisdom that came from it was 
contrary to even the messaging that I had received in every way. It wasn't a one-to-one like, oh, all of a sudden I'm exploding Christianity. And now I'm like, you know, smarter than them because I have all of their (laughs) tools in my toolbox. It was like, no, I came to some of the same damn conclusions, but in a way that was very alive. You know what I mean? Like uh, you you open the- That's interesting because I almost had the exact same in reverse, I'd say um, uh, a little bit in that I um, wasn't raised in a religious context at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was reasonably atheistic. agnostic but you know slightly theistic mm-hmm. and so i was almost raised in a way where religion was something to be completely ignored um and so for most of my life i it, most of my early life i'd admit almost a sneering kind of attitude towards yeah. religious religious belief mm. and in the same way realizing that the your um the way you digest these stories is very subjective and there's a lot of wisdom in there depending on your particular circumstance and and it doesn't have to be the you don't have to think of it as the word of god to get value of out of it obviously right. you can come at these all these um parables and gospels in a in an atheistic way and still get a load of of, of that right of it so yeah. that was a real light bulb moment for me where i was like oh actually there is loads to be learned um, yeah. um from all these timeless stories there's a good reason um why they're timeless and i should try and engage in them and and, and learn stuff from them yeah uh, uh, yeah it is it's interesting and i have sneered honestly i have and still do sneer uh at religion uh on the regular but it's 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 more of a friend i guess now you know it's like right. it's like rolling your eyes at your at your friend who i don't know steals the salt shakers from restaurants like oh come on <laughs> like uh <laughs> i don't know so uh yeah so i mean this i think uh, everything we're saying touches on epistemology um and there I, i'm interested in in your thoughts on it um i I have been uh, had the strong feeling for a while that there's a serious epistemological problem, which could honestly just be um, that we have a that we have a default, an unquestioned default uh, epistemology, and we don't understand it. But then, as I try to delve into epistemology in a systematic way, I find it really hard. I don't know if you found that. Like, I find it difficult. I don't find it difficult to think for myself what knowledge might be, uh, mm-hmm. or if I see something where I'm like, somebody seems to be mischaracterizing what knowledge mm-hmm. is or where knowledge comes from. I can see that, but when I try and make it into, when when I try and study it and the various mm-hmm. uh, strains of it or streams of it, I find it tough. So, what's what's your experience of that been been like? Or yeah, that's um, I think. Uh, the idea that it's tough, yeah, I mean, epistemology is, first of all, it's a very broad topic. I mean, it's, I think topics like this, you can approach with an easy sense of frustration because of how broad and how um, varied they are. Um, I think 
you again just have to subjectify your experience of learning about them so I'm not particularly knowledgeable about the ancient Greek philosophers for example apart from maybe um, the Stoics and Plato and Socrates a little bit but my experience of understanding how the epistemology and how we come to understand knowledge comes from reading about the Enlightenment which is a very modern way of understanding that and I think that's our default way of understanding epistemology in the West anyway mm -hmm. this idea that we have over time come to uh, understand the world more and more studied the world more and more and we're we're slowly piling up knowledge and it's linear and it's uh, what historians call whiggish and progressive so like medicine for example we have more and more medical knowledge um so the romantics were the first people to criticize this idea of epistemology because they realized that it might be true of certain types of knowledge more scientific knowledge or what we think of as the hard sciences today but when it came to ethics and politics and aesthetics and culture and art it didn't seem to apply it seemed to be a little bit problematic and knowledge seemed to be a lot more subjective so i like that as one of the first critiques of the enlightenment and then there's postmodernism which is another critique from the other end but i think there are a lot of um, similarities between romanticism and um, postmodernism um, but they emphasized how knowledge either changed and shifted and evolved, evolved is the wrong word, but um, moved over time and that it, it colored our goggles in certain ways, um, or that it differed between person and person, between different readings of different texts at different times in different places. Um, so I like to hold those two things in my head at the same time. What like a, a enlightenment, progressive, whiggish, and technological, scientific idea of knowledge, and then the critical side. And I think you can you can use them against each other and with each other. Yeah. Um, but you can also kind of draw circles around. Um, for example, certain either disciplines or topics. So. I think medicine's a really good example. So, you know, technology um, and pharmaceuticals and medicine are the first type of enlightenment knowledge and they're very objective and they, certain um, uh, medicines affect the body in a certain almost timeless, universal, biological way. But then there's another type of medicine um, that's more like psychology or mental health or, and it, so that, and then there's also the way healthcare is delivered. So in pharmaceuticals might be um, objective, but the way in which they're distributed and organized and all the rest of it, these are much more cultural and subjective. And you can come at these with a different type of critique. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think physiologically, uh... Uh, I, I love all of that, by the way, and, and I think I think we're actually designed to have those two opponent uh, viewpoints um, in our mind, um, mm. and designed to have that that tension 
in there that that's i mean yeah th- th- take the word designed as 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 unreligiously as you can but uh, it yeah. feels like that that the way that our our brains work mm-hmm. you know that um there's there's left brain right brain stuff it, it, i don't right. like, i don't like to be simplistic about it but there is a tension within our own minds even physiologically about how we process information and and i think yeah i guess epistemology would have to um cover uh, both sides would would have to include mm-hmm. both sides, and so it might it might be you know it might just be a matter of of we're overbalancing one way or or another. Um, yeah, I also loved um, how you made comparisons between the Romantic movement and, and the postmodern movement, uh, because that is something I have noticed. Um, you know, when I first started getting kind of uh, interested in um, the way the mind works, I discovered a pretty deep. Uh, distrust and, and even hatred of postmodernism uh, that's out there, and um, and then I also know, and then I also started to be drawn towards postmodernism, but at the same time, kind of drawn towards romantic, the romantic ideas and and uh, kind of the idea of um, the knowledge or the the wisdom and intelligence encoded into poetry and the and the. Mm-hmm the sort of uh, the effect of beauty on us. And I feel like, uh, I feel like both. Yeah, I do. I do think that the future holds something where, where, where postmodernism and, and, uh, and the romantic, romantic sort of uh, thinking could be, uh, well, I don't know if they can be combined, but the future yeah. is not, the future is not a, uh, in my mind, a, a downhill slope to one or the other of those things, even though I do know there are people kind of pushing for both. There are people pushing for a return to like a return to modernism, like a self-conscious return to modernist ideals. But uh, I think maybe all of those uh, mm. abilities are- Yeah, I find myself thinking about, sorry. No, that's uh, Yeah, I often find myself thinking about the parallels between postmodernism and romanticism and I've <laughs> struggled to come up with anything convincing but I think um, combining those two philosophical um, areas is could be quite a powerful way to bolster I think we're still we're still we're still modern and we are we're postmodern and we're still modern and postmodernism's creeping into the public sphere and the way we think about the world more and more but for the last 30 40 years i think has been exclusively a academic you know pastime right. yeah um but so you know coming to terms with how that does affect how we all think about the world and how we have conversations about politics and and culture and social life mm. I think that's one of the things that we're at a kind of roadblock at and we're not finished with that yet. We don't know, um, you know, we don't know, for example, if you accept some of the more um, extreme ends of postmodernism, which I I don't really, but is that everything's relative and everything's subjective. You get into this, this, you get into this place where in politics anything can be argued for and anything goes and um and it's hard to then have a a reasonable conversation and i think you get into quite dangerous territory 
but there's a more modest interpretation of postmodernism and romanticism. And like you say, right side, left side, I think I like that as an analogy because the creative kind of spirit in, an, in us that wants to drive forward and that wants to emancipate and wants to, you know, give the voiceless voice, they're things that, that they're the reason that people who want to do that, who have an urge to do that, I think are drawn towards postmodernism and, and um, romanticism. And I think that's why you see some of the most um, the most successful and influential um, um, people in history that have emancipated or revolutionized are usually quite poetic. You know, whether it's Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela or mm-hmm. um, or just many many poets who revolutionized culture. I mean, you know, the Romantics, Wordsworth and and, and Coleridge wanted to do for culture what the French revolutionaries had done for politics and to mm. revolutionize culture and poetry and language and make it yeah. a tool for freedom and emancipation. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's um, the, the thing that I guess I, um, the concept that I guess I think of with, when I'm comparing those two um, uh, postmodernism and romanticism is the idea of transcendence. Um, and, and maybe it's just a, it's just a matter of, of their different views of transcendence that really separates the two. Whereas like the, um, the romantics had an idea of transcendence, of transcending the, maybe the articulate and the everyday uh, towards something mm-hmm. that is, uh, towards something that is higher. Um, postmodernism is trying to transcend even beyond that you know like there is there we need to transcend this into whatever the hell we want there is nothing uh higher right and and i don't i actually Mm. i i don't have i mean that's that's maybe the extreme end of of postmodernism but um Mm. like the 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 more moderate end is that there isn't one and and this i i'm i'm 100 percent on board with there isn't one interpretation there isn't one narrative uh of history there are you know, an, uh, a sort of a web, a neural network of, of uh, uh, interpretations of history or of narratives that took place in history from very small ones that can still be very insightful to, to very large ones that have been overlooked. And, and in that way, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Um, and I think, mm. um, I, I think what, what unites, you know, w- w- the way that, that both of those streams become instantly um, useful uh, on a cognitive level for me is is to just kind of get your head around the idea that whatever is beyond whatever we might transcend towards we cannot fix what the definition of it is going to be right now because we haven't been there yet you know Mm. we haven't so in other words i i like um uh it's it's really big for me because i i realized that okay um you know like the the sort of most loudmouth end of atheism there the issue is is not that they don't believe in god it's that it's prescribed you mustn't like you know it's it's mm. you know, uh like we know there's nothing there and please don't please don't leave that option open uh, and that's the damaging part. It's not the la- it's not the lack of belief or whatever. And and then the Christians, uh, you know, it's like oh we, uh, you know, you have to believe in a very specific God. And please don't make up, please don't even try to understand 
under your own understanding. You know what I mean? So it's this <laughs> fixing, it's right. this fixing of the final goal in, and so in the, uh, that's why I guess I would lean more in the romantic direction personally, because um, I think they did have kind of an, an acceptance that like the mystery of it was um, the mystery of it and the undetermined um, end point of our kind of um, attempts to transcend, you know, through um, through language and through um, art and, you know, poetry and that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but you know, anyway, I don't know if this is sparking anything. Uh, yeah, well, um, transcendence is a difficult topic, and I think yeah. meaning, and I think meaning essentially comes back to the, the social life of the community and how a community comes together and interprets the world, and what your place is in that. Mm -hmm. So you know, on the atheistic or sociological reading of religion, that religion is a tool for social cohesion and, you know, transcendence in the romantic sense and the religious sense is a kind of shared all around what we don't know or, you know, what we can't understand, um, the romantics talked about you know the awe of a um of a of a mountainscape the awe of a sunset the awe of right. the universe um so i think that shares a lot with with religious uh understandings of transcendence but i think that is a connection between the individual like you know if you're sharing in say in the romantic sense and say the shared experience of uh, being in a crowd um and and i guess in the religious sense I, i've never experienced this but if you're worshiping in a crowd and you're as i understand it that can be very powerful um i think it's a kind of cohesive glue that is um a way it's, it's a shared understanding of what we don't understand we don't mm -hmm. And the magnitude of the universe we don't understand what comes after life um and then in the postmodern sense i think it's a similar thing it's that there's a sense in which the if if the ways we understand the world aren't necessarily objective or universal or structured then they are just what we make uh, of them to make them to be um, and so, and and then they in turn make us who we are. They determine us. And so it again becomes about social life and community. It becomes about what are the shared norms and attitudes and sensibilities that are required for us to have a common understanding of the world. Um, and that might change over time in a postmodern sense. Um, but that's the danger in it too. I think you leave one of the dangers with postmodernism and the dangers of a kind of Nietzschean view of the world is you, you leave um, you leave meaning and, um, and morality open to be um, to be kind of used by the strong against the weak or used by it right. becomes a 
game rather than a morality or an ethical game. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, difficult questions. I think there's the, the, that's why transcendence, morality, ethics, and postmodernism, romanticism, and our, the ways we um, acquire knowledge are also um, inherently linked together. Yeah, totally. And I think uh, I, I think postmodernism has like a uh, uh, it can have a rejection of coherence just just by mm. sort of um, just on principle. And I think yeah. maybe maybe that's what uh, maybe that's what kind of uh, is the is the pernicious thing that I I don't prefer about that movement. But so I all of this does kind of um speak to what we what we say is knowledge or, or what we say knowledge is and i think that uh um maybe maybe you have a sense of this too but that there is a, a very deep enlightenment um i have to stop using modernism and enlightenment uh in the same breath as though they're the same thing and i i feel like i could do a whole episode yeah, i think i do that I think I, I could probably do a whole episode with with you teasing those two ideas apart. Mm. But anyway, uh, aside from that, um, I guess. Well, I guess we could say I've never thought. I think I might do that as well often. But I suppose the Enlightenment is more philosophical. Modernity is more a, a period. Mm. Um, I guess modernity includes things like industrialization and science. Yeah. It also includes an art artistic movement where I, right. I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if enlightenment, if the enlightenment specifically had an artistic movement associated with it. No, I don't think it did. Um, not sure. Interesting. But um, yeah, I think that we've been approaching all of these possible streams that we've talked about, which are all compelling in their own way. Um, these streams of thought with a default um, enlightenment epistemology, where it's sort of the, the, the at least the specter of object objectivity is always there, like the pretense of objectivity is always there. And the pretense that we're talking data points that, that knowledge mm -hmm. and data, knowledge and information and data are, are all kind of synonymous. Um, right. And which kind of takes, uh, kind of takes wisdom out of epistemology and it kind of takes um, uh, emotion out of epistemology mm. and it, it makes those things very suspect. Right. Um, it, uh, and it takes, well, it takes subjectivity itself out of knowledge, which right. is very interesting and which makes, it makes perfect sense. It, it, it maps very well onto what we've seen in the history of religion because when epistemology or when uh, sorry um the enlightenment came along i feel like christianity which is the dominant religion in the west had uh, a um just kind of couldn't stand to be to admit in this new climate the the, the deep subjectivity of religion and so it became uh it be it began to get more and more tight and rigid and there became more and more sort of apologetics of like actual objective proof uh, of religious things, which kind of, it, you know, it kind of killed religion in, in a way. Right. Like it, it, <laughs> it killed faith. Yeah, maybe if it had moved more towards the acceptance that it was subjective, it wouldn't yeah. have 
um, positioned itself so detrimentally against modernity and the Enlightenment. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, and I think this is a traditional arc or a common arc with people. I mean, Wordsworth in particular was quite anti-religious in his younger years, um, but as he as he grew older, he became quite um, conservative and traditionalist because he realized that many of the ideas he had about, uh, you know, the things we were talking about transcendence and community and imagination and, um, and spirituality in the non-religious sense were very, very religious. Mm. Uh, and that those were the kind of the things the Romantics talked about were the kind of, they were the raw data of what religion is really about you know, mm. intuitions and, and love and feeling and, and big questions about what happens after life and, you know, yeah. things that cannot be calculated. Um, um, yeah, sorry, I forget the question. No, that's okay. I don't, it wasn't, I don't even know if it was a question, just talking about yeah. um, the way that uh, sort of uh, epistemology has uh, changed uh, religion and and I basically I was getting at the fact that a um, I wasn't trying to make a religious point so much as saying that the um, uh, the Enlightenment um, really got deeply into a lot of different streams and positions and so that even the you know uh, it, it when people want to make fun of postmodernism they typically find times where a postmodernist is actually using a very modernist, sort of dualistic uh way of thinking um you know and so rather than rather than taking uh an, an idea that already existed and just kind of exploding it and saying yeah you can do that or you can do this or you can do that they almost want to make a new rule right uh make it make a new standard that that must be followed and i i'm mm. i'm i'm intentionally not wanting to I, I'm not wanting to impugn any of these school, any of these schools or streams because they're also valuable. But I, I think that there is a that epistemologically, there is this kind of common stream throughout them that that inhibits that inhibits them. Like, mm. and and if we want to talk about it from a religious yeah. perspective, I, I'm a pretty big fan of William Blake. Uh, I don't know how you feel about him. He's he's nuts, but I mean, sorry, I shouldn't use that term. He. <laughs> I mean, he would be diagnosed with something today for sure, but uh, it, it would would I call him religious in one sense? Of course, he's deeply, fundamentally religious down to his core. But is he really? But 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 he also was everything was constantly exploding for him, you know, like concepts and, uh, you know, and just like everything was just everything he saw in life was um had a light emanating from it that he didn't understand and he loved the mystery and the and totally embraced um a kind of unknowing um, right and and that's and and i find that when someone can do that uh right. it resonates with me that there is a, that there is some kind of knowledge uh, uh yeah that 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 knowledge has to have in it more than data that knowledge has to mm. um ha has to contain patterns of coherence 
um, and that strong knowledge would be patterns of coherence that draw us uh, forwards. Um, yeah. Yeah. Rather than being something that is housed in us like a hard drive or, or right. something like that. Yeah. I think um, that I think I haven't read much of him, uh, but Blake's, like you say, that kind of, you know, the, the explosions and the drawing forward and the reverence over the unknown. I think these things have been kind of um, conceptualized in in different ways of thinking, in many different ways. And it's a kind of humility in that, you know, Socrates, I think there's a really profound reason why Socrates was one of the first major thinkers of world history. And his main, his primary message was that we should be aware of our own ignorance mm. and we should, um, that you know that the only thing that made you wise was having knowledge of that ignorance and then there's parallels in that with original sin and christianity that we're born with a fatal flaw um and i think that has there's a space for that in romanticism but i think maybe that's one of the things that is missing from modernity and the enlightenment worldview mm. yeah actually you know there's no gap it's just a positivistic pile of knowledge that keeps building up and if you have a worldview like that that doesn't have any room for modesty humility magnetism understanding where passions come from understanding what drives us then you're kind of just building knowledge completely blindly you might be building a bigger taller pile yeah me of knowledge but i mean i think of maybe um i, I maybe think of knowledge and uh, epistemology as kind of a maze rather than a line mm. so the objective scientific worldview is that you collect you collect collects a straight line forward and you're making progress um but in a maze you're going forward and you're making some kind of progress but there are different directions you can go in. So if we've taken a different direction and a different time in history, we still have acquired some kind of progress, but we'd be in a kind of a parallel universe, I think. Right, a different place. A completely different world that we inhabit. Yeah, so it's not necessarily, yeah, no, I, I really like that. And, and I, should, I should temper this. I know what, I know what we're both not saying uh in, in a sense uh in that we're not saying that that kind of um thinking doesn't happen i think it happens whenever there's passion involved anywhere whenever there's real care for for topics like i talked to a philosopher named bernardo castrop and he was talking about how the closer because he's worked at cern um in in switzerland and and mm. like the kind of been around the top of of the scientific world and he was basically saying that you don't find a lack of wonder there. Like you don't find yeah, a, a yeah. lack of, uh, you know, that the people who are really doing amazing things are doing this just naturally. So it's not yeah. necessarily, it's not that, oh my goodness, people killed this type of thinking. It doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's, yeah. We're going downhill. We're all going to become robots. I don't want to be alarmist like that. But I, I do think the more consciously uh, we can embrace that, 
you know, um, I guess kind of incorporating um, some of the non-articulate, um, imagistic, imaginal, um, and and less defined or less testable and provable things into what we consider to be knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. The more we can kind of do that with intention and without going, uh, you know, rejecting propositional knowledge at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I just, it's yeah. hard for me to imagine a society where with increasing amounts of that wouldn't be increasingly, uh, yeah, uh, healthy. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, of course. I'm not saying, I think everyone, most people know this intuitively. Of course, everyone has a drive and a wonder and a, and a, a at least a tertiary understanding of what creativity is. You know, it's not this dualistic conception of the dry fact-based scientist and the wonderful imaginative artist on the other side it's again like I say that right. those characters are in they're both in us all um and it's more about what we emphasize in society and in the west and what we have good conceptual frameworks for and what we don't we have a very good conceptual framework about around science and empiricism um, and, you know, STEM subjects. Um, do you use that phrase in the US? Yeah. yeah. Okay, science, okay. to check in. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, are um, emphasized over the humanities um, and the arts and music and all the things that actually are required to make, um, to make the the, the scientific pursuits richer. So there's nothing, I mean, one of the most influential texts on creativity, I can't remember his name, but he was a mathematician, Henry, Henri Poncler, maybe. Okay, I don't know. He um, is a very, it's a great essay. I really recommend it. It's very short. It's only a few pages. And he talked about, this was only at the beginning, mid 20th century, I think, People had, you know, of course, discussed um, what uh, empiricism was and how, um, I don't know anything about mathematics, but what the pursuit of mathematics was. But he realised that no one had talked about creativity in mathematics and how, you know, his life as a mathematician was as much about thinking creatively and thinking artistically as anything else. And he tried to describe on the page what it felt like to be creative and how it was like a, a swarm of something kind of, you know, inspiring him and plucking things out of the clouds. Yeah. This great amalgamation of maths and art. And it's, um, it's such a rare thing. And I think that's what I try and get at, that we need to be able to teach people to do both those things at once and to be, you know, you can be romantic and you can be scientific. Mm-hmm. Time. Yeah, I, I I love that, and I think even Einstein was considered himself a a, a deeply sort of creative uh, thinker who thought in in imagery and and that thing about clouds. Yeah, I think about this cloud. I I think you know when I conceptualize the world often as like a forest, a beautiful forest, but there is a fog that I can see. And when you know when you're in the flow state or something, you are seeing shapes there, and you're pulling them out. You might be right. pulling them into the articulate world, um, yeah. shining a light on them, but as though they have something to tell you, not as though mm. um, 
you know, a creativity, creativity involves uh, finding things in your own mind that tell you things that inform you. Uh, right. right? Uh, that's what separates. I mean, that's what separates art from graphic design or propaganda or something like that. Why we, why we maybe make a little bit of a distinction between those things because right. um, uh, there is this artistic space you can be in where you expect um, you expect something to come from your subconscious or from beyond. Uh, and, and you, you, you actually have an expectation. You might not fully understand that thing uh, and that that's okay. And I would go as far as to say that those things are our knowledge because they are there and they inform and they help control. I mean, they help harness emotion. Um, and so I don't want to be too overly like, but everything is knowledge like i do want to have a definition of yes. what knowledge is but i i uh i think that 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 is kind of a quintessential element of it yeah well i think um you know in my videos i try and i um i think the music is the most that's a bit much one of the most important elements and i love how putting uh, music, different types of music, I, you know, I try different types of music over different sections, completely changes the tone mm. and the experience of what I'm trying to say. Completely, yeah. I think, you know, you watch, and obviously we, we all know this watching films and, and television, that you know the mood instantly from music and what you're yeah. being taught by music. But what we don't maybe reflect on as much is that not only does that prepare us and set the tone, but it makes us pick up different things from what yes. we're, you know, what we're trying to to, to digest or mm -hmm. what. Um, and again, yeah, it's a perfect example of how art directs the direction we're going in with knowledge as much as the yeah. real dry collection of facts does. Yeah. Uh, do you make that music, by the way? No, no, oh, okay. I wish, no. I did. Um, no, I, I would love to, I was thinking recently, I would love to do like a course on on uh, composing or something. Yeah, you should take an Ableton course or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I would love to make a video that was maybe about something like this, something like transcendence or authenticity, you know, a really deep philosophical concept and make a kind of short film that I compose some mm. kind of you know that adds to it in the way exactly the kinds of way that we're saying and yeah. really directs it i mean this is one of those things that i'm never going to do and i'm imagining in my head yeah well incredible. i have a million i have a million projects like that like think things like that but i, I guess um two things that come to mind your the music in your videos is often quite sim simple uh mm -hmm. and and based on how creative you are i i would imagine that if you did try that you could at least do it for one video i mean it yeah. would, might not be this thing where you would uh you would always be the composer because that would be a huge you put so much work already yeah um yeah. but uh, i'm a i'm a musician and and uh well, it was important for me to um to i'd made the theme song to to the show so if you get a oh, watch cool. it. <laughs> oh okay i, I like wanted the theme song oh good oh okay you watched it that's that's good yeah, uh yeah um, that I, I really enjoyed it. And originally I had actually this, uh, this more um, sort of out of the box idea that I would do music, I would put up um, like cover songs that 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 kind of 
represented some philosophical idea that was on my mind as part of the wow. channel. It, but it never yeah. worked out that way because I'm a full time. I have a full time job and three kids, and um, okay, and so yeah. uh, anyway, I don't. Life if gets I away. exactly, I, I I'm actually yeah. quite jealous when I see the amount of work that you've put into your videos. I uh, I I would love to do that, but. Uh, um, anyway, well, yeah, I would, yeah I, would, I hope you get to one day. I see a guitar poking out of your yeah, shop. and a and an ancient pump organ. Oh, cool! And I got a ukulele here. Oh, nice. Well, yeah, if you ever want to, uh... and a synthesizer, all within reach. Anyway, sorry. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, if you ever want to make something for then and now, I'd, uh, I'd love oh, that. Oh shit! Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Yeah, oh, no, we should I... collaborate. Oh man, that would be great. I would love to okay. do that. Um, yeah. Okay. So, okay. Well, um, cool. I, I do think that we've, we have, we haven't described exactly what epistemology is, but I think it's one mm. of those topics that is, well, like we're saying there is a, there, there's an element of mystery uh, in what knowledge is. And even mm. if just that, even if just that one little nugget got into people's minds that uh, epistemology is something we can think about and isn't exactly some default thing that we is in our minds yeah. questioned uh i think that would i would feel good about that you, you have a skeptical yeah. face or are you just it's a thought no no i was just thinking yeah we haven't defined it it's difficult to define i don't i was wondering if we could tie it up in some way um sure it's too big a topic i think the only thing i'd say is that I, if you, you know, if you accept uh, some of the things we've said and you accept some of the tenets of romanticism and postmodernism, then you do get to this kind of um, this relativism and this skepticism and this difficulty of definitions and, you know, hard to find a cohesive answer to these things. But I think actually it becomes very democratic at that point. And I think it's quite um, um a uh, exciting uh, proposition to know that there is no one answer because you can then you can if for example you think democracy is a good thing and you think it's something to be uh, revered and fought for fought for fought for then you can make your epistemology and your pursuit of knowledge as democratic as possible and this is something if you the American liberal philosopher John Rawls talking about his um, his difference principle and um, veil of ignorance. He thought that you could make a strong argument for focusing on the less well off and on the person that needs it the most, mm. and that that was quite a strong ethical. Uh, there was quite a strong ethical case for doing that, and I think we've kind of. Um, we've kind of accepted that in the journalistic sphere, in the public sphere, that there should be an emphasis on shining a light on certain issues that we have as a society. I think we could do better. I don't think the press does a great job all the time, but I think, you know, in during the pandemic, for example, if the press shines a light on the plight of certain communities or how something, someone needs to be given a voice that they don't have, and that voice then contributes to the direction we choose to go in as a society. I think that's a good way of approaching epistemology. You know, mm. what does the world need the most? I think that's 
that's a way that maybe scientists and um, and all, that's that's something a lot of people I think could get on board with. So mm. I'm sure many scientists and researchers, you know, they pursue their passion at what they think would make the world a better place, as do um, historians in a sense, and as you right. know, many of us. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I like, I mean, the, our epistemology is a tool. And one thing listening to your videos is that I, di I have, when you talk about morality, it feels like uh, knowledge and epistemology are kind of, they're not distinct. They're, they're not, you know, they're connected <laughs> with these things, right? They're connected with morality. They're connected with ethics. Absolutely. And, and uh, the idea that um, oh man, I had a I had a nice coherent one there a minute ago, but I kind of uh, I think I kind of lost it. But yeah, the, the idea that we do kind of uh, that epistemology is something that we have some, you know, there there's some openness to it, and mm -hmm. it is not. Um, I feel like that does um, always work against default power structures you know what i mean yes. so if you can work against the default power structure in your own epistemology that you've never questioned then um you're in a pretty good position to work against uh a default power structure that has been unquestioned right because you've yeah. you've opened up and you 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 can hopefully see a few more things a few more landmarks uh along yeah. along the path that other people aren't seeing because of the way you know, well, because of the music that's being played to them, you know, sort of conceptually, right? right? Uh, yeah. That's that's preparing them somatically for uh, what responses they should have to yeah. uh, stimulus from the government or from, an, you know. So it's a right. non it's a non ideological knowledge. It's yeah. I think it's removing as much as you can. Of course, you can't, but uh, right. removing ideology from your con conceptualization of knowledge and, and making, yeah. making it kind of an organic thing and yeah. make and letting emotion be a part of it. Um, yeah. So that that sense of empathy towards people, you can view that as a little more solid. You can say, actually, this is part of my knowledge. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just kind I of- I completely agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really beautifully summarized. But I think actually it just it also reminded me of um, I think there's a lot of uh, lots of similarities between uh, Peter Singer, British philosopher, and John Rawls. Um, he talks about um, talks about effective altruism and how the thought experiment of the drowning child. Um, Ooh, give uh, me that one. I'm not sure that I know it. Yeah, he says um, if you're you know you're walking on your way to work and you walk past a pond and there's a child drowning. And it would only, you know, you'd only ruin your hundred dollar trousers, hundred dollar uh, uh, pants, excuse me, to uh, uh, to wade in and save the child. Of course, everyone knows that it would be unethical not to do so. You would, without hesitation, go into that pond and save that child. And actually, it would probably be one of the most memorable days of your life. You right. would. If you saved someone from a burning building, yeah. that would be one of the best days of your life. Yeah, I did something that day. I did something incredible. Yeah, he says, we have the option to do that every single day. You know, we have the option to, right. to direct our efforts on the people that need it the most, whether that's in communities or sub-Saharan Africa, the poverty and starvation. And so 
when you frame it like that, it makes you really realize we have a moral responsibility to the people that are most in need. And then, and like you say, morality and ethics and epistemology are deeply, deeply connected. Because then if you accept that, and this is another tenet of effective altruism, the next question is, how, what's the best way of going about doing the, the most good I can? Right. It becomes a question of tools and it becomes a question of knowledge and it becomes a question of experience. Yeah. Um, and so, that, that kind of competition uh, in the world, even, you know, competing streams of people trying to do the most good they can for other people. Right, yeah. It's hard to imagine. Like, that's the kind of like, that's a capitalism I could actually, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. feel comfortable with. Like, you know, what yeah. I mean? a currency I like of a currency of kindness. Uh, or something like yeah. that, where you're, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, currency of kindness. Uh, well, obviously that could go a bad way too. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I feel like I could talk all day, but I do think you've kind of summed things up well there. And we're an hour and 18 minutes in, so that's getting to to people's breaking point, maybe. But this has been awesome. I, I've really enjoyed yeah. it, and uh, yeah, too. and, and um, I hope that we can collaborate. I would honestly, I would love to score one of your videos someday, just because uh, I want to do more of that kind of stuff. So we can. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk about it. Well, and uh, no pressure we'll, if it doesn't happen. It will work something out. Great. And, uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me, Aaron. It's been great. Uh, no problem. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Last thing I always ask is, do you have something you want to promote? Um, I'm definitely going to go watch that new um, Hobbes video because I actually uh, watched the other one last night and uh, or the Leviathan, and uh, I'm I'm excited to go watch that. I actually looked for it to see if it was there, but it wasn't. So I'm going to go watch that. Um, but anything right. you want to specifically promote or just generally the channel, like, subscribe, Patreon. Yeah, yeah. Just go and uh, check out the channel. It's just uh, search that and now over on YouTube uh, or as a podcast version if you prefer to listen. But they're mainly, you know, they're going to be watched, they're visual. Yeah. Uh, Oh no, you froze up. You froze up. Are you talking? Oh, dang. Oh, right at the, okay, there you go. Sorry. Right at the end, it froze up. Okay, there we go. My internet connection is unstable, but anyway. Um, okay, yeah. So yeah, support then and now, and uh, it's a great channel. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you, you. soon. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Okay, so I'll I'll cut it there and then I'll end here. But Go yeah, on. thanks again. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. Likewise. Have a good night. Yeah, and you have a good weekend. Hopefully, we can do this again sometime. That would be great. I'd love it. Thank you. Oh, okay. cheers, Aaron. Bye.